Well, hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. A word about the I before E rule, hopefully without rage. You know, much is made of the rule I before E except after C. There are all these memes that then go on ad nauseum about how there are so many exceptions to this rule that it's a stupid rule and it's all a lie. Nope, sorry, I can't do it. There will be rage. For instance, I saw this meme the other day. I before E. Except when your foreign neighbor Keith receives eight counterfeit beige sleighs from feisty caffeinated weightlifters. Weird. Or another one. I before E unless you leisurely deceive eight overweight heirs to forfeit their sovereign conceits. Really stupid sentences anyways. Oh, and this one. I before E except after C unless the efficient concierge of the priciest ancient glacier hacienda serves a society of proficient scientists studying a species with insufficient consciences leading to racier piracies. Lunacies. I saw another meme that said there are 923 words that break the I before E rule and only 44 words that actually follow that rule. Wrong. See, rage. Just thinking about it fills me with rage. I'm going to try to explain this calmly. You can't just take part of the rule, ignore the rest, and then make a frickin' scene about how inaccurate it is. First things first. This rule is not to do with every single time you see I and E in a word. This rule is only to be applied when the vowel combination makes the long E sound. So don't even think about this rule if you don't hear that E. We're talking about words like receive, which is after a C, versus the word believe, which is after an L. Secondly, you have to pay attention to the rule in its entirety. You can't just ignore the last half. The whole rule, some of you may remember this, is this. I before E except after C unless it says A as in neighbor and way. Now, there are a few exceptions, of course, such as weird and seas and leisure, which, if you're British, is often pronounced leisure, so that one goes out the window. See, some people, like even Merriam-Webster online, try to tell us that words like forfeit, albeit, glacier, and deficiencies are exceptions to the rule, but they are not exceptions to this rule. They are different rules. Oh my God, it makes me so mad. It is so much simpler than all these memes would have us believe, and it does a disservice by confusing people, and it makes them want to give up. So let's break it down. In that first meme, except when your foreign neighbor Keith receives eight counterfeit beige sleighs from feisty caffeinated weightlifters. Weird. Okay. Neighbor, eight, beige, sleighs, and weightlifters are all long A sounds. So the last half of the I before E rule applies. Foreign, counterfeit, and feisty clearly do not make either the long E sound nor the long A sound. Therefore, the rule does not apply receives follows the rule. Caffeinated. Now, the root word is caffeine. It and weird are among the exceptions to the rule. See? The second meme, I before E unless you leisurely deceive eight overweight heirs to forfeit their sovereign conceits. 
This one has simply chosen to ignore even part two of the rule, the except after C part, because deceive and conceits are following the rule exactly. There are the words eight and overweight again, long A sound. And even sovereign has a root word of rain, which makes the A sound. And that last one I mentioned, I before E except after C unless the efficient concierge of the priciest ancient glacier hacienda serves a society of proficient scientists studying a species with insufficient consciences leading to racier piracies, lunacies. Urgh, that is just full of crap. The only word in there that can be looked at with the I before E rule is the word species, which is an exception. Even piracies and lunacies don't apply because those are following a different rule. They are plural, and the singular versions end in Y. That is the rule. Change the Y to an I and add ES. Not one of those other examples of EI combinations or IE combinations is making the long E sound. So this meme is just crap, and it, it isn't even the least bit humorous. It is not a tongue-in-cheek, oh, look how kooky the English language is thing. It's just flat-out wrong. <sighs> End of rant. Now... We left our friends at a rather stressful moment, so hopefully I've built you up for that. Kier threw herself at Misty, and the Guardian, well, we're not sure where we stand with him. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 24 Though at Enormous Cost Fennel and Janik hardly knew what had happened. They saw a figure hurtling toward Misty, screaming, a blade in hand, and both bodies toppling over the edge. Their reflexes didn't allow them to stop fighting. Juggler cried out as if he'd been mortally wounded, glanced at both his opponents, and dropped his weapons to his sides. Janik and Fennel were both mid-swing and couldn't avoid it. Juggler took two killing blows from opposite directions— Elf and Dwarf stood panting and staring at each other over the bloody corpse. Then they finally awoke to the scene on the other side of the clearing. Juskelin on the ground, immobile and groaning. Derry on his knees, one hand on his throat and the other preventing his face from hitting the dirt. Frederick bleeding from a chest wound but standing. All Frederick's men strewn about the clearing, dead. What was that? Janik finally voiced between breaths. A horse whinnied, and Fennel recognized Trigg. Kier? he said in disbelief and ran to the precipice to look down. Oh, God's blood, Kier! Janik looked over and saw the narrowing crack between the doors to the Indian caves. He ran toward them just as they closed with a soft foom of escaping air. Was she in there? He hooked his thumb back at the doors, staring in shock at his companions. Derry! Fennel whirled around to check on the captain. Derry, are you all right? Come on, we've got to help her. She's down there. The elf helped Derry to raise himself so they were face to face. Derry gulped hard a few times. Oh, gods, he breathed. It was Kier. I thought I... But then... The captain pushed himself upright and followed Fennel's gaze over the drop. At once he pivoted and, hesitating only a moment to meet Frederick's eye, stumbled down the path. Fennel paused and glared at Frederick. I suppose that somehow proves Kier gave Al on the curse? He followed Derry. Janik scowled at Frederick. 
Let's get busy. Make yourself useful. The dwarf knelt at Jaskelin's side to assess his friend's condition. Frederick pressed his hand on his chest, nearly breathless with pain. Blood oozed out from between his fingers. He wanted to dash to the edge of the drop and see for himself. He hoped Derry would get to her in time. If Kier died, all hope of vengeance was gone. Misty was dead. She had probably died before the two women had tipped over the edge of the precipice. About a twenty-five-foot drop, though it wasn't sheer. The hill was steep, not quite a cliff. Derry spared no more than a passing thought on the perfidious assassin. It was Kier he had his eye on. She had flown over top of the dead woman and lay in a crumpled heap a few feet below. The physiker adept could not tell at first glance whether she had survived the fall. Heart in his throat, he forgot his own near-death experience and knelt at her side, placing his two fingers at the base of her neck. He took a deep breath and bowed his head in a sigh of relief. There was a pulse, faint but steady. Captain, Fennel knelt beside Derry, is she... The elf could not complete the question. What news? called a voice from above. Darian Fennel looked up to see Janik's bushy head, his forehead creased in anxiety, peering down from where Kier had toppled. "'She's alive,' Derry answered without delay to spare their worry. "'She's badly wounded, I think, though I haven't identified her injuries.' He turned his grey, impassive expression to the elf. "'Fennel, we'll need a sledge, or, or a travoy, if you please.' "'Sure thing.' Fennel turned away, and Derry could already hear his elven tongue asking his friends, the trees, for their assistance. Derry fell willingly into his physiker persona. Dealing with the ailments of friends was less complicated from the distance of fact-gathering. Emotions could be more easily masked. This time, though, it was hard. With every scratch, bruise, and bump he found, he was given a clearer picture of what had happened as the earth drew Kier toward its merciless solidity and the more serious injuries revealed themselves. Hands on her hilt as it jutted out of Misty's side, she'd let go one hand before they'd hit, but not the other. Her left wrist was broken. Good thing her muscles are so strong, that will help it heal faster. She had been impaled by her own pommel as her body collided with the ground, doing serious damage to the muscle tissue in her right shoulder, just outside the protection of her breastplate. Will she ever wield a sword with the same strength? She'd been thrown over top of Misty and continued her rolling tumble, being scratched and battered by underbrush, and eventually hitting her head on the bowl of a larch. A knock like that could take months to recover from. Her left leg lay with an unnatural rotation below her knee. Derry wasn't sure whether the break had occurred in the initial impact or after she'd flown over the assassin's dead body. She might walk with a limp for the rest of her life if I can't set it properly. In spite of Derry's every effort to disallow his emotional connection to his friend, he realized that the droplets of moisture that kept appearing beneath him as he worked had come from his eyes. Jaw set, shoulders stiff, eyes narrowed with concentration as he made mental notes of everything he found, it couldn't be helped. The last words he'd spoken to Kier had been unkind, and he realized now that if those were the last words he ever spoke to her, his own life would change dramatically. He loosened her breastplate and gently ran his fingers along her ribs, checking for fractures. Something sharp poked his forefinger, and he yanked his hand out. 
His finger had been pierced, and a tiny droplet of blood oozed out. He pressed it to stop the bleeding, then gingerly lifted Kier's armor to locate the cause. He soon came across something that twigged his memory and sent a shiver up his spine. A perfectly formed white rose still lay concealed next to her heart where she had promised Kami to keep it. What kind of magic kept a rose fresh after so many weeks of being squashed inside her armor? It was firm and fresh as if it had just been plucked. Derry sat among the undergrowth and sniffed the flower. It smelled as any other rose would. Yet obviously it was not. Why had Kami wanted her to keep it? What sort of effect was it having on her? Why would Kami want to harm Kier, and why would he not have done it when he had the chance? After brief reflection, Derry tucked the rose in his own pouch, though he trembled. When Jaskelin was feeling better, the captain would have the mage try to disclose its magic. Jaskelin! Derry got back to work, remembering that the mage would require his assistance as soon as Misty's spell wore off. When he carried on with his assessment of Kier's ribs, his hand fell upon another puzzling item—cloth, this time. He carefully drew it out from where she had obviously shoved it in haste. A sack, such as one might use to carry a loaf and a small round of cheese for a quick lunch when working in the fields. He held it gingerly in both hands as if afraid something might pop out at him. Not much weight to it. Holding it in one hand, he used the other to squeeze the bottom of it, trying to guess at its contents. It yielded easily to the pressure of his fingertips. Finally, the captain opened the top of the sack just a slit and peered in. Derry was a man of less imagination than many, having trained virtually his entire life to know wrong from right, false from true, fanciful from factual. But a few of those facts seemed to fall into place like seeds from a skilled farmer's sewing hand. Kier had not been there when they'd arrived. She suddenly appeared from the direction of the caves themselves. She had left him two nights ago, traveling alone. Plenty of time to get here. She possessed a sack full of the finest glittery powder one might describe it as... dust. Kier had done it again. Making her as comfortable as he could, he leaned down to her ear and said, Hang on, Kier, please. He started to race up the switchback trail but stopped short before reaching the bend in the path when he remembered that someone had stolen all their ingredients. I'd better keep Kier's success quiet for a while. He located Fennel, and the two of them hastened to fashion a means of transporting their friend. Major Gilvray sat at his desk, quill poised to write yet another stilted line in his letter, but his mind had wandered. Laying aside the quill, he leaned back in his chair and brushed his fingers on the flat pouch that held the stone. The key to the Inden Caves. How he had always wondered about them. What was inside? What had the Dark Elves left behind? Marcus Fleming's voice reverberated in his thoughts from the night he showed him the key. You should try it before the colonel gets back. What a good idea. Gilvray glanced at the portrait of his wife. He flushed guiltily. I'm coming home soon, princess. Why, oh, why had he given in to temptation? Why did that damned girl have to show up just before his home leave? The night before last, she'd brushed her hair across his torso, scratched her fingernails down his back, squeezed him with her— 
He'd need more than two weeks to recover from her. Shit. He did not want to go home with that girl in his thoughts. She'd left an impression deeper than the runes carved into the stone. He got up and went outside, escaping the reproachful image of his pretty wife. Acknowledging the sentry at his door, he stepped around the corner and leaned against the building, breathing deeply. He opened the pouch. The stone felt cool in his fingertips. The complex etchings were even more pleasing to the eye in the light of day. The gems trimming the edge sparkled, and he held up the key to see the light shine through the colored stones. Did they leave behind any other treasures like this? Jewels, pottery, magical items? Wouldn't his wife just squeal with delight if he could present her with such a gift? A gift like that would make up for his being away such a long time. And other things. He stepped around the cabin. Corporal. Sir? Fetch Lieutenant Fleming and Major Chada, then you can help me pack. Pack, sir? Yes, Corporal. I'll be going away for a few days. With the heat of the afternoon, Skimnoddle and Harley moved out of the sun, under the mottled shade of the aspens at the base of the mountain. They figured the rest of the company had been gone several hours, although they stopped keeping track once they began playing music. Skimnoddle handed Harley his little drum and taught the man some basic rhythms to play. The halfling played his flute, and they shared old favorites. Harley had a good singing voice and a natural feel for the drum. Mealtime rolled around and Harley traded some spicy sausage for one of Skimnoddle's sweet dried apples. Skimnoddle insisted on letting all of their food items sit in his little pot with the lid on for a few minutes, even though they weren't using a fire. Why? Harley asked. Skimnoddle squatted down. Holding the lid on fast, he gave the pot a little shake and wiggled his eyebrows mysteriously at his companion. Is this some bizarre custom among your people? Harley asked, stretching his legs out to cross his ankles, or have you spent too much time in the sun? Finally, Skimnoddle removed the lid and handed Harley his lunch. The man turned his bread over a few times, looking for irregularities. Finding none, he took a hesitant bite. The two returned to their shady spot between the aspens. The saucepan has a unique feature, Skimnoddle revealed at last. I've never told the others of my party this, but it is a healing pot. Mild, you understand, but after eating this you will perhaps find you have more energy than bread, meat, and fruit would normally give you. As if you'd slept for an hour or so, you might say. If you had any wounds, depending on their severity, you might find that any pain had eased somewhat, or blood might clot more readily, for instance. That's pretty neat. Skimnoddle glanced at him sharply, then looked away. They fell into a discomfited silence for the first time since their friends had left. Uh, Harley began after a moment. So why haven't you told your friends about the pot? Skimnoddle turned as though he'd forgotten Harley was there. Hm? Oh, the pot, yes. He shrugged. Well, it just hasn't come up in conversation, really. I mean, one doesn't open a chat with, by the way, my cooking pot is magic, you know. Now does one? No, I suppose not. I'm sure there are many things about yourself you have not shared with your friends, am I right? Are you kidding? Harley scoffed, then softened. I guess that's a difference right there between you and me. These people I work with? He hitched a thumb in the direction of the path they'd taken. They aren't my friends. I hang with them right now because Ronav was looking for people, and I'd just lost everything. You don't say no when you're in a position like that and someone makes you an offer. 
I don't trust any of them. Apart from following orders, it's every one for themselves. Any one of them would sell me down the river if it meant more of something for them. He tossed his apple core into the bushes. Seems like just the opposite with your group. Skimnoddle thought a moment, then he nodded. Yes, yes it is. How'd a fellow like you link up with them? Skimnoddle's smile broadened, and he looked at Harley with a shrug. I had nothing. You don't say no when you're in a position like that and someone makes you an offer. The halfling leaned against his tree and contemplated the contrast in their situations. He had been a member of this party only since they returned from their last mission. He did not make friends easily. No one in the party was a confidant. Yet Skimnoddle knew without question that his companions would watch his back just as unfailingly as he'd watch theirs. Instinct told him that the troubles the group had experienced on this journey, the suspicion and doubt, were not typical of the way they related to each other. Some strange mood had settled over them all, himself included. Janik and Fennel were both stout companions, and Kier... Funny how Harley had said his magic cooking pot was pretty neat. That had sounded so much like something Kier would say. Oh, he wasn't really in love with her. He extolled her beauty and virtue because he delighted in the incongruity of complimenting a woman who did not wish to be complimented. His words always grated on her, and he loved the reaction. He had the feeling that she otherwise wouldn't notice him at all. He also praised her beauty because it was true. So what happened to Kier? Harley asked, and Skimnoddle started, thinking for a split second that he might have spoken aloud. I guess the long and short of it is that she and Derry had an argument. Derry won, then? Skimnoddle paused, screwing his face up in thought. No, I would have to say that Kier won. We don't know where she went, but Derry thinks she might have gone back to see Kami. As if in response, they heard the sounds of footsteps tromping down the pathway above. The two companions stood, one several feet taller than the other, and looked at each other in the eye. It was as if both understood it was time to go back to opposite camps, yet neither had a wish to. Skimnoddle stuck out his hand. Harley clasped it. Then they started back to their own sides. The sound of a horse's whinny from the direction of the trail caught their attention. They'd left the horses below. Whose was it? Skimnoddle's bow leapt into his hands, and Harley readied his broadsword. When Fennel emerged from the path leading an animal that Skimnoddle instantly recognized as Kier's horse, he cried out and tucked his weapon back into its sheath on his back. His little legs flew him over to where his beloved rattled along on a makeshift travoy pulled by Derry and followed by a stumbling, drastically shrunken collection of battle-broken warriors. Harley was right behind him. "'Where did she—' Skimnoddle began. What happened? Even he knew the gravity of the circumstances would not support his usual histrionics. Where is everyone else? Harley put in, looking sharply to the one and only remaining member of his party. Frederick's face was unreadable. Dead. Skimnoddle searched the faces of his companions and could only make out that something unthinkable had occurred. Derry spoke no word, but with Janik's assistance gently lowered the travoy and settled Kier to the ground near the fire pit. Path was too narrow to connect it to the horse, Janik explained. A bruised and battered Jeskelin hauled himself to Derry's horse and ruffled through his belongings to bring out the physicker's kit. Fennel, relatively unscathed in appearance, finally explained. 
You may or may not have noticed, Skimnoddle, but when we reached the caves, I discovered that my ingredients had been stolen. So had everyone's. You can see the result. He waved his arm broadly at the dwindled numbers of travelers. Skimnoddle knew better than the rest that the collection of precious items had been stolen. It was too early to reveal his own news. He must wait for things to play out a bit longer. His experience as a performer served him well. And Kier, he asked again, masking his knowledge behind realistic anxiety, where did she come from? The elf fought back emotion as he outlined Kier's sudden appearance out of virtually nowhere, followed by her pitching herself over the edge. What about you? Harley turned to Frederick, who stood silently to one side. I didn't steal the stuff, if that's what you mean. The strength of Frederick's voice still gave evidence of his background. But it's obvious one of my company did. He looked pointedly back at the last one of his retainers. I cared just as much about the lady's survival as these people, so I knew whose side I had to fight for, and will continue to fight for, so if you know anything at all about the theft of Alon's remedy, I suggest you speak up now. Harley stood his ground, but surprise showed in his eyes. Me? On my last breath, I swear I don't know anything about it. Frederick's gaze sharpened to an acute warning. You had better hope I never find that out to be false. Skimnoddle stepped between them, his tiny figure threatening, though one man could easily have attacked the other over his head. Or what would you do, O oh, disgraced former captain of the Shale Castle Guard? You may take on that tone with this, my friend and comrade, but do not forget that you yourself are under some scrutiny, having many questions to answer on your own behalf. Not my best effort, but effective nonetheless. Frederick blanched and backed off. Now, he went on, my love lies wounded. I would fain end this injudicious inculpation and elicit all down to the finest minutia of her trauma so I may adopt a concordant emotional response. Oh, my dear lovely girl, I know all about your mission and about you. Did I not say I am your guardian? Kier Halliden. You killed Ronav Malachite in Nenya. What's more, you enjoyed it. One thing more. A particular magical gift you have. Your guardian. White stone. Magical gift. Magical gift. White stone. Kami's voice. Saying something, a warning, pain. Kier screamed. Derry thanked Aiden that she was unconscious. Setting broken limbs was not a straightforward procedure, and Kier had several. Harley's voice drifted down to him. How shall we deal with the dead? Derry did not shift focus from his work on his patient. My only concern right now is with the living. The dead can wait. The captain half expected Harley to take exception to his attitude, but the man surprised him. Fair enough, he said. Can I hold her knee so it's easier for you to set the brake? Derry didn't bother taking the time to register surprise, but shifted to make room for his unexpected assistant. Harley knelt next to Kier's hip and braced her knee while Derry firmly pulled the lower leg down and eased it back into position. Kier's gut-wrenching moans made Derry sweat. 
Fennel had produced perfect splints, and Harley helped Derry bind them to Kier's leg and arm. Harley checked for her pulse on either end of each break, determining there was so far no damage to her blood vessels. Derry adjusted and dressed Kier's shoulder after applying his salve. Then he sat back on his heels, his hands resting on his knees. He'd done his best. The muscles would heal in time, though it would be a while before her sword arm was back to the strength she had toiled so long to build. He had to hope for the best with the broken bones, and trust to the goddess that Kier wouldn't end up with a permanent limp. Harley had already moved on to Frederick, cleaning the wound in his chest. His work was exceptionally thorough, Derry noted. "'Do you have the tools for stitching?' Harley asked. "'This looks to need three or four, and a grade two healing potion if you have any.' Derry checked over the wound and glanced at Harley. "'That's right.' Then he hesitated. "'Can you—are you able—' Harley smiled. "'I can administer a healing potion, but I'm afraid my skills don't go far enough to do stitches.' All right, then. Can you take care of Jaskelin? Harley nodded and went to work on the mage. Janik and Fennel ate a bite or two, and once Derry had the physicking under control, they hurried with Harley and Skimnoddle up the mountain to care for the dead before nightfall. And at last, at long last, Derry the physicker adept, who would have died by non-tactile strangulation if not for the woman who lay moaning near him, finally sat down to rest. To rest to eat, and to wonder many things. Who had stolen the ingredients from each of them? What was the purpose of the white rose? How had Kier gotten into the caves when he had the rune pattern? Derry felt for the young man Harley. Apart from his leader, he was the only remaining member of his traveling party. How did he feel about that? Derry wouldn't have blamed him if he feared his own throat would be cut. It was impossible not to notice, though, that Skimnoddle and he appeared to have taken a shine to each other while the rest of the group had been up the mountain, and he clearly had some background in physicking. Thick, scattered clouds darkened the sky, and the flicker from Derry's small fire seemed to be sucked into the night only a couple of feet above the ground. The captain had thought he was not sleepy, but he must have dozed off, for now he was startled by the sound of footsteps. He fumbled half-heartedly for his weapon— the clouds had parted to welcome the light of the waxing moon. His patience rested on the outskirts of the firelight. "'Job's done, Captain,' Janik said. Derry sat up, blinking, and nodded. "'Where?' "'We found this handy cave with big doors, so we opened them and tossed the bodies in,' Harley said cheerily. Skimnoddle snorted, and though Derry was slumped practically double with exhaustion, he chuckled quietly. No, seriously, Harley said. We found a spot in the woods to the left of the doorway. The three grave diggers settled in nearby. Harley stood awkwardly, the flames lighting him from below. Skimnoddle answered the unvoiced question. Harley, my good man, it seems you are indeed one of us now. No sense you're sleeping in a separate camp. And he waved him to fetch his bedroll and belongings. Derry awakened immediately, taking advantage of the distance. "'Did he give you any clue about who might have taken our goods?' he asked. "'No,' Janik replied. "'Janik and I were thinking that with the other group dead, mostly anyway, "'we're free and clear to search through their stuff and find it,' Fennel said. "'Exactly what I thought,' Derry said. "'I have a hard time believing it was him, though,' Fennel nodded in Harley's direction, "'though they could barely see his outline in the moonlight. "'I suspect everyone until—' "'Derry stopped himself as Harley approached. "'I've been thinking—' 
Harley dumped his pile on the ground and slumped next to it. The only way to prove I didn't take your stuff, and to find out who did, is to search through all the dead folks' things. Whoever took it had to put it somewhere. Skimnoddle raised a hand dramatically. Enough! I can keep you in suspense no longer. I know unerringly who has the medicinal elements we have worked so hard to obtain. You do? Derry said. Who has them? Fennel leaned forward toward the halfling. Skimnoddle smirked. I have. And when his companions stared at him, speechless, he added, Never foreseeing the fate of the culprit, fully anticipating the individual's return, I took the liberty of stealing them back this afternoon. Fennel whooped with joy and leapt to his feet, scooping the halfling up with him and swinging him around. Where was it? he cried. Who had it? Janik said at the same time. Derry just sighed deeply. Frederick and Jeskellen stirred. The mage rolled over, the dose of pain-relieving tea holding him to sleep, but Frederick raised himself onto an elbow to find out what the excitement was about. When Fennel placed him on solid ground again, the halfling straightened his tunic and belt in a dignified manner, crossed his ankles, and lowered himself to a seated position. "'So where was the stuff? Out with it, man!' Fennel leaned down to slap him on the shoulder. Firstly, I shall tell you that my own supply of items was not taken, yet by the means of certain tricks I know and will not share with you, the attempt upon my person did not go undetected. This led me to believe that the rest of you would have suffered the same fate, and likely did not possess the skills to avoid such a violation. Applying my skills at speculation and deduction, I was able to conjecture the identity of the guilty party. My suspicion was confirmed when I performed the search and found the goods." "'That's all wonderful, but who was it?' Fennel said. "'I'm sure you will not be surprised. It was Misty.' Many comments and reactions followed. Derry found himself looking over at Frederick, who stared blankly into the air in front of his face. When his eyes met Derry's, the captain said, "'What do you suppose Kier knew about that?' Frederick's brows contracted. "'I believe they were in on it together, and somehow Misty and Juggler went against the plan.' "'And just what do you know about it yourself?' Janik said. Frederick straightened slowly as the accusation sank in. "'What are you saying, that I was a party to all this?' "'It doesn't seem unreasonable,' Fennel said. "'Misty and Juggler were under your command.' Frederick shook his head, his hand spread out in his defense. "'You don't understand about those two, he quietly pleaded. "'They worked for themselves alone.' They followed along with the rest of us because it suited them at the time and for no other reason. I have just one question, Harley said, clearly relieved to be out from under the veil of suspicion. How by the hammer god did you steal the stuff when I was sitting here the whole time? Skimnoddle smiled as if to say, I'm afraid you'll never know. The excitement ebbed and the group fell silent again. Janik made an apologetic grunting noise. Bringing us round to reality, there hardly seems a point in having the rest of the ingredients if we don't have the dust from up there. He jerked his thumb up the mountainside. I had a look at those doors, and even with the rune pattern, there's no way of knowing how to get in there. Does our sly little magician have any ideas? Fennel asked, nudging Skimnoddle, who shrugged. It won't be necessary, Derry said softly, and rose, his boots hardly making a sound on the dirt ground as he moved over to Kier. He knelt next to her agonized body and felt an ache in his chest as he observed the lines of pain on her forehead, despite his heaviest dose of tea. 
He tried to brush away those lines with the palm of his hand, but she merely spouted a small gasp of breath in response. The lines remained. He carefully slipped his hand inside her armor where he'd left the sack and drew it out. Only when he turned around did he become aware that all the eyes of his friends had been on him the whole time. Assuming his usual businesslike air, he returned to the fire, cradling the sack in one hand. There, he said. Kier joined us from inside the caves. She had already been successful, though at enormous cost. He stopped talking, for fear of tears spilling over. I feel like this is the beginning of a new road for the team. You know, only Frederick and Harley remain of that party, and just one more ingredient to get a hold of, and then all they have to do is get the stuff to Barthelen Castle and save the day. Piece of cake, right? Now, believe me, I do understand all the kooky foibles of the English language. We have to deal with rough, dough, through, and cough. Affect is the verb, and effect is the noun, except when affect is the noun and effect is a verb. But there are rules which work just fine. Let's look at the word stop. If you're going to add a suffix, you double the final consonant and then add the suffix, right? So to add ed to stop, you double the p and add ed, making stopped. S-T-O-P-P-E-D. So explain to me why there's a product on the market they call unstoppables, but they did not double the p. It should be unstoppables, and that's dumb. Oh, and another one that I hear all the time is, her and her friend did such and such. No, she and her friend did the thing. And there's a difference between less and fewer. If you can count it, it's fewer. If you can't, it's less. If you stick your head in a plastic bag, you have access to less oxygen, and as a result, fewer breaths will be available to you. If you have less flour, you can make fewer cookies. And if you drink less alcohol, which equals fewer drinks, before writing, you will make fewer mistakes. Thank you to my family for putting up with my grammar rants. Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Sharon, who tutored dyslexic kids, so she taught me so many of the rules. Except I before E, except after C, unless it says A as in neighbor and way. I'm pretty sure my grade one teacher, Mrs. Beckett, taught me that. Shout out to the original six. And thanks so much to you, dear listeners. Hit like and subscribe and share. Also, what should I do to celebrate the one year anniversary of Totally Fantastic Title? That's coming up. Now, I'm going to go back to working on Gatekeeper's Revelation because I'm working on a scene that involves about 13 people having a big discussion and sharing intel and making decisions, and I don't want it to come across like the Council of Elrond. So, back I go. Now, go be fantastic.